Welcome to the Digital Transformation of Business podcast, brought to you by Hughes On. All right, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, my name is Chuck. I've got with me co-hosts Brian and Calvin. Good to be here. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Doing wonderful. We've got a cool topic today. Um, I'll be leading that discussion. It's about a book that I'd love. It's my favorite book on business or business management. It's called Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. Now, it's called Creativity Inc. because it's by the former president of the Pixar Animation Studios, which is a very creative organization. But he brings in a lot of business savvy. He knows his business. He's learned a lot along the way through trial and error, through failure. And he brings a lot of insight to how to manage any company, really. It doesn't have to be a creative company specifically. So I'll give a brief summary of kind of Ed Catmull's experience. He started at the bottom, really. He started as a student at a University of Utah. He was studying computer science in the early days of computer science. We're talking 1960s and 70s, I believe, so mostly 70s. He was pioneering some of the very first computer animation. Long before CGI existed, he was modeling you know back then they would model like a cube that would spin and it would take all this time to just make that one animation uh, he was modeling his hand a teapot and some other objects that took a very long time to do that it was full of math and and a lot of uh, coding it was just nothing like it is today and then he really helped the industry evolve into what it is today he worked with a group owned by George Lucas of Star Wars fame. It was a computer graphics department. He was one of a very few people, a group of a very few people. At some point, George Lucas sold the group to Steve Jobs, of all people, of Apple fame. Steve Jobs turned it into what we know today as the Pixar Animation Studios, a very successful movie studio in Northern California, in the Bay Area. There's a lot to be learned from these stories and the kind of progression of this one industry that's uh, very digital, it's very artistic, and it's got a lot of uh, really cool information that we can, uh, we'll cover some of that in this in this podcast from the book. So Ed Catmull was the president of Pixar Animation Studios. They were making successful films. He thought everything was going well. He thought the staff was happy. He thought morale was high. He thought things were going very well. He was not aware of a lot of problems that existed in the company. He was not aware that a lot of employees were not happy. He was completely unaware that morale was not very good. Now, why do you think he had no idea? Well, he was at the top, right? He wasn't being told these things. The people reporting directly to him were also at the top, and they were telling him what he wanted to hear, right? You may have experienced that in, in some companies where the workforce – doing all this you know, hard work, putting in all the hours, they may express themselves to their immediate supervisor. They may express themselves to their peers, but they're not going to the president of this organization to, to vent, to express their concerns. When he finally figured out that there were, there were these problems, he created an open-door policy where anybody in the company, you work in the cafeteria, you sweep the floors, you are a junior animator, you're an intern, any level in between the bottom and the top can go to his office and, and talk to him. So that began to change everything. One thing I thought was pretty cool, he noticed that all of their meetings were in a conference room with a very long, narrow table. And somebody would go in before the meeting and put a place card, a name card at 
every spot of the table. And so they put the most important people, the director, producers, the top-notch people in the very center of the table. And then going out from the center, you have the quote-unquote less and less important people. Now, if you were invited to this meeting and you knew that you were not high up in the hierarchy, you knew that you needed to sit against the wall on a, on a chair, you were not even invited to the table, right? We all know kind of how that feels, I think. And um, he said this created unintentionally a culture of, of hierarchy, a pecking order, where if you were the guy sitting at the end of the room in the corner against the wall, you weren't going to say very much. You may have some really valuable insight. You may know more than the director that's sitting at the center about a certain problem, but you're not about to raise your hand because the pecking order is very clear. You're at the bottom of the pecking order. And when somebody finally realized that, they said, this is, this is not right. The way they realized it, he said, was we, were, we had to go to a different conference room. It was smaller. It didn't have a long table. It had a square table. And we didn't have place cards, and we just had to go in there and sit randomly. He said that the meeting was so much better than, than these other meetings. Uh, so somebody in another meeting took all these place cards and kind of randomized them around the room. So it wasn't um, all the powerful people in the center. It was random. And the conversation was much, much better. So he'd realized that that one thing, and the one thing he talks about a lot in the beginning of the book is candor. Like, are you going to be candid with your leaders or are you going to tell them what they want to hear? Are you going to be candid with your peers? Most likely. But are you going to be candid with your boss's boss's boss? Do you even know that person personally? Have you ever met that person? That's a problem if, if you cannot speak openly and honestly to uh, management, right? Right. Yeah, no, I think that's something that uh, whenever you get into those meetings, more than more than maybe four or five people, uh, I think you see exactly what you're mentioning here, where uh, maybe 75% of the dialogue is driven by just a handful. And I, I think in certain instances, maybe there's good reason for that. But generally, finding ways to get everybody involved is what drives that creativity. It's what drives, uh, you know, getting different perspectives uh, you know, diverse opinions and things of that nature. And I think that if you just allow your company culture to settle, you normally run into those types of situations where you get those large meetings with uh, the conversation being dominated by a minority of people, mostly just because uh, other people feel too uncomfortable to speak up. And right. so if you can find ways to make everybody feel more comfortable in those large group discussions, uh, yeah, I think you're going to see the creativity really start to flow. Exactly. And the, now you've got a need to kind of shift your culture, change your culture. And they didn't intentionally build this type of culture. It was just kind of the way that things went, right? It just They just happened to sit in those seats and then happened to put the place cards there and the names. It was just an unfortunate thing that evolved over time. Um, so he says he started to, to look into the, the value of, of candor. Candor isn't cruel, he said. It does not destroy on the contrary, any successful feedback system is built on empathy, on the idea that we are all in this together, that we understand your pain because we've experienced it ourselves. So he talks about the difference between honesty and candor. So you can be really blunt and honest and, and destructive with your feedback. You can also be very uh, constructive and you can really help the process. So as a company, he learned that everybody needed to, to check their egos at the door. They could not come in and be too married to their own ideas, too married to any single concept, be willing to change and evolve the ideas, the, the processes, everything in the company needed to be flexible enough that things could be modified along the way to eventually get to the place, to the best place possible, right? Yeah, I think everybody everybody's living, for the most part, comfortably within their shell, right? 
Yeah. And when you get in those meetings, you know, you start to slowly see people, you know, come out of their shell, give contributions, and that's fantastic. That's exactly what you want. But if if you ever want to see somebody just suck right back up into their shell, <laughs> you know, try giving them some some criticism that's not in a in a good constructive manner. Uh, for the and most especially part. publicly, right? Yeah, it just shuts people right up, and, and they might they might never feel comfortable saying something again in, in a similar context if it's if it's a bad enough experience, right? Um, I, can, I can take it. Except for you've Brian. got you've got thick skin, it's, Brian. Well, well I mean, I, I played football my whole life in sports, so we we get you know as athletes, you get that in front of um, your entire team, you know, with your coaches. <clears throat> so some people have a little bit more thick skin. Like you could say whatever to me, I'm not going to take it personal. Because I had to have that mindset, you know, playing ball, that he's talking to me from a coach perspective, not from a person, yeah. a coach, a coach to a player perspective, not from a, you know, person to person. But I said that jokingly. But <laughs> um, I'll also say that I was in this specific situation here at our company with 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 Dan um, a couple weeks ago. Dan is one of our boss's bosses. Our boss's bosses, yeah. And the round, so he, he has a roundtable with with all of the employees, and he tries to you know get each employee about twice a year. Usually it's about seven, eight people. Well, this one it ended up being five initially, and then somebody dropped off to go to another meeting, so it was just about four of us. And I spoke a lot. I gave a lot of my my feedback and some good ideas that he ended up writing down, and he said why didn't you bring this up? You know, back then, and I, my exact words were, I was timid. Right. And I felt that in that setting at that time, where it's just four people, I was just, <laughs> I felt bad for, you know, kind of taking over a meeting a little bit. I didn't want to, I, I had to stop myself because, you know, I was, I was just gabbing at the mouth. But I think, you know, going back to, to that, to the situation and, and that experience, yeah, like that intimate setting enabled me to, you know, not have that, that fear to speak up. Now, you mentioned fear, and that's really good because that's the next part of the book is he talks about uh, fear-based organizations and how destructive they are. He said there's a quick way to determine if your company has embraced the negative definition of failure. So he's, he's implying that failure is actually a positive thing if you make it. Ask yourself what happens when an error is discovered. Do people shut down and turn inward, like Calvin said, instead of coming together to untangle the cause of the problems that might be avoided going forward. Is the question being asked, whose fault was this? If so, your culture is one that vilifies failure. Failure is difficult enough without being compounded by the search for the scapegoat. Hmm. Interesting. I have this, this philosophy that I live by, which is called fail fast. Yes. With that perspective, the, with this context, Failing is not really failing. Failing is you're growing because the faster I can fail, the faster I, I could adjust and, you know, make up for that mistake, so to speak, if you want to even call it a mistake. But especially us as marketers, if we have a new product or if we have a new market that we want to target and we create an ad campaign and we launch it and it sucks, like that's, that's cool, right? Like I would rather us spend maybe a week of that on that campaign and we fail the first week versus taking maybe i don't know three months right to, to make it and then we still fail right but now we've gained three months potentially of time uh when it comes to adjusting and and uh, optimizing the campaign for success and and catmull says something very similar he says don't wait for things to be perfect before you share them with others show early and show often in other words fail fast yep. recover Man, i'm like right on line with this you huh? are very in tune with this <laughs> 
It's my superpowers. Um, now, he, he quotes somebody, um, great story man, Joe Ramp. He said, better to have train wrecks with miniature trains than with real ones. Mm. So if you're going to have those train wrecks Good. that are inevitable, then um, better do it with the miniature ones. Yeah. In a fear-based, failure-averse culture, people will consciously or unconsciously avoid risk. They will seek instead to repeat something safe that's been good enough in the past. Their work will be derivative, not innovative. But if you can foster a positive understanding of failure, the opposite will happen. Management's job is not to prevent risk, but to build the ability to recover. As a leader, demonstrate trust by responding well to failure. Trusting means that if someone uh, makes a mistake, you trust they will act to help resolve it. And then this is great. The cost of preventing errors is often far greater than the cost of fixing them. <laughs> so I'm laughing because in football, there's a, a, a defense when if, if you're if you're winning, there's a defense that's called prevent defense. Right. And it's it's structured in a way where uh, it makes it very difficult for the offense to score in a quick amount of time. Uh, an average a time for an offense to score is maybe five to eight minutes right mm -hmm. if, if it's a long successful drive so the the, the prevent defense um makes it that much harder and longer so defenses only want to use it when there's a little bit of time left on the clock and i'm laughing because in my experience playing that defense i, I call prevent i say prevent defense prevents you from winning the game Right. Because right. you're 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 so worried about losing the game that everything that got you up to that point with that lead is you know, you've completely thrown it out, you know, out the window. And now you're doing something that you haven't done all game and it's, it's going to prevent you from 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 winning, so to speak. I think it does go back to just the fear of, OK, if I do fail, like what's going to happen? Right. The, the transparency. Yeah, I think that's I think that's where the issue is. I don't necessarily think it's the issue of the failure. It's what's going to happen if I do fail. Could this cause me to lose my job? Or is this going to cause us to lose X amount of dollars? Whatever the case is. I think if we, if, if us as employees, if we know, okay, if I do fail, what's going to happen? Well, you know, that consequence of failure is not as bad as, as this consequence. So I'm going to go ahead and, you know, move forward with it. Yeah, so Catmull suggests that we, we hire qualified, capable people that are very talented, that are very good at their jobs, then trust them to do their job. And when they fail, it's the natural process of the job. Now, do we want to, you know, we don't want to be failing left and right unnecessarily, but as a part of the process to getting to the, the perfect or the near perfect end product, we need to be understanding. We need to not, if, if you're fearful, Brian, that you're going to lose your job, what are you going to do? You're going to either not tell management, you're going to try to fix it yourself, you're going to cover it up, you're going to blame somebody else. There are a lot of options that aren't yeah. ideal. That you're going to go for because you know that you're going to get yelled at, you're going to get you know reprimanded somehow, or potentially lose your job. So Catmull talks about all of that is not ideal. That is not good. Let's let's make a culture where when something bad happens, come forward, we'll figure it out together and move on, and we'll learn from our mistakes. Now, the story that he tells is my favorite story from the whole book, and it's it's remarkable. He tells the t uh, story of the time when they were making Toy Story Two the sequel to this groundbreaking Toy Story 1 film. They wanted to make a sequel. They they were not owned by Disney at the time. They were still private and independent, but they were they, they had a contract with Disney because Disney was going to distribute the films and they were going to take half the profits and the Disney had the upper hand, right? And Disney was insisting that they make a film that was very different than the first film and they were getting a lot of feedback from these executives every six weeks. So imagine this. You're, you're a 
successful small animation studio at the time. You're creating great work, critically acclaimed, box office successes, and you show them your work every six weeks. And these guys sitting, these men and women sitting in the room are not filmmakers. They're executives uh, and nothing against executives, of course, but they're giving notes, having no idea what they were looking at previous to this, you know, these meetings. They look at the screen. Oh, I don't like that. Change that. Give him more attitude. He needs to be, you know, he needs to be meaner. This guy, needs, it, it, all these notes were coming uh, back and Pixar saying, well, we've got to do them. So they're, they're implementing all of these terrible ideas that they knew were terrible, but they felt like they had to do it. And then when they go back to, to Disney executives, the executives go, what is this garbage that we're watching? This movie is terrible, guys. We're going to pull the plug. So they, they said, all right, we're done with this. We're no longer doing this movie. And Pixar says, hold on. We are doing what you wanted us to do. These are all of your ridiculous notes. Just let us do the movie that we want to do. And they said, well, if you're going to start over and make a new movie, you still have the same deadline. So they had like a very short deadline and they started to work really hard. So fast forward, they've remade the movie in record time. They've done amazing, amazing things in record pace. And all of a sudden, one day, an employee at Pixar Animation Studios enters in the command line, a command that is uh, that would delete all of the files on the servers. He entered uh, this code that immediately started deleting everything, the whole entire movie that they had been working on for so long. People are running around pulling plugs of servers and <laughs> computers and just trying to stop this loss. Well, it's too late. They lost everything pretty much, uh, something like 90%. They were under tight deadline anyway. Basically, it would have been the end of the company. The studio would have been out of business had um, they lost this film completely. They go to the backup they figure, well, of course we're going to have a backup. Turns out the backup wasn't working. It, it was having some problems. There was no backup. So they have nothing now. They have absolutely nothing, and they're just there's no way they can recover from this. So they're sitting in a meeting for hours trying to figure out um, what they're going to do. And he says, then about an hour into our discussion, Galen Sussman, the movie's supervising technical director, remembered something. Wait, she said, I might have a backup on my home computer. About six months before, Galen had had her second baby, which required that she spend more of her time working from home. To make that process more convenient, she'd set up a system that copied automatically the entire film database to her home computer automatically once a week. This was our third random event, and it would be our salvation. So what happened was, she goes, wait a second. I think I've got this. I had IT help me out with this. I think my computer's probably still downloading the entire movie every week. So they run over there in the car. They wrap up the computer in blankets. <laughs> they put it in a seatbelt in the back seat. They hold it carefully. They drive in the slow lane, and they, they slowly drive back to the studio. They open it up carefully, and guess what? The whole movie's on there. Nice. They lost two days of work or something instead of um, all that other you know years or months. Now, the takeaway from this is that there were definitely people aware of the situation that were thinking and saying, wait a minute, she shouldn't have been able to download all of this work to her home computer. That's not secure. All these, there are a million different reasons why she was in the wrong, according to these people. Uh, did she have authorization from, you know, so-and-so and so? Uh, wait a second. This is, this is not right. You know, let's discipline this woman. And they're going, wait a second. We're not going to discipline the woman who saved all of our jobs and saved our entire studio. Um, also, at the same time, there were people going, wait a minute. Who was the one who entered that command in the command line that deleted everything? Apparently, it was supposed to be used for, like, individual uh, folders within the servers. But he was on, like, the root uh, folder and where it deletes all subfolders. And so people were calling for his 
termination. Like, let's get, let's fire this guy. He really messed up. And Ed Catmull says, wait a second, this may be a, a result of poor management. Why do we even have a system that would allow something so easy and quick to really destroy our entire company? Mm. And was he doing it maliciously? Was he doing that intentionally? Was he do, or was he just doing his job and then made it a simple error? And so his thing was, let's not hang this guy out to dry. Let's not publicly destroy the man because of this error. Let's learn from our mistakes and then let's put in a safeguard and let's do better backups. Let's do so. All the people calling for you know the firing of multiple people, he was able to kind of give them. Uh, better perspective, I think. That, that's a good sign uh, of, of good management, in my opinion. And, and also, it, it makes the point, kind of drives the point home that those failures make you better. And I'm sure that after that incident happened, like you said, they probably implemented uh, policies, procedures that made it impossible for a similar event to happen again. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, they're a better organization because of that mistake, even though it did almost cost them everything. You know, if we take it to a smaller scale, when people, you know, everyday people make regular mistakes at their everyday jobs, those mistakes lead to, you know, more policies and procedures being put into place that help to uh, improve the organization. And at the end of the day, I think that you, you should be thankful for those mistakes because, you know, otherwise uh, they might lead to, you know, even worse situations down the road. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me of uh, one time I was uh, doing a consulting job in Hawaii, of all places. I uh, wish I had more of those. But I was doing a little consulting job for 10 days, and we were at a, a tourist de destination. And the other consultants I was with, we were touring it as tourists. We were going around as guests, customers, and uh, kind of assessing the experience. We came across a, a girl who was working at this particular place, and she wasn't super refined in her customer service. She wasn't super good at, she was kind of sitting down and but was distracted. I don't remember exactly, but she was she was not a, a model employee, you might say, and uh, but nothing nothing terrible. Well, we go back and we met with the the president of the this organization, large organization, and um, one of the consultants told him, "I would have fired her on the spot." And the the president of the organization says, "You know what?" I'm going to take some blame on that because I think that's more of a management problem than it is an employee problem. That employee probably didn't get trained well enough because I don't think her intention was ever to be terrible at this. Additionally, a lot of our employees come from remote islands in the South Pacific, islands that do not have tourist attractions like this. Uh, these are people who are very poor, impoverished, and when they arrive here, we have to clothe them, we have to train them, and they've never been in a situation like this in their entire lives. They may have been on a farm their whole life, they may, may have never interacted with other people, they may be speaking a different language. He put on a whole different perspective for us, he gave us a whole different view, because this uh, other consultant was saying, I've got her name, I want her fired, She needs. she's gone. They, they might not even know what customer service is, yeah. <laughs> what that even means to, you know, smile and, uh, you know, talk politely. Yeah, that might not even be a concept. So. And, and I don't think it was. And I think yeah. it was probably somebody new. And their supervisor really probably needed to, to just have a little bit of chat. So the head of this organization said, you know what, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to no, she will not be in trouble for this. Uh, even if she knew better, we're going to work with our um, management and just make sure that everybody understands the, the importance of these things because they may not know any of these. So often we, we feel like being a little heavy handed in our management, right? Like we would take drastic action immediately and abruptly as a, as a good way of doing that. And, and maybe it's partially because we want to send a message to the other other workers. Hey, this this will happen to you if you don't get in line. 
And and Catmull just says this is not the, the proper way of doing it. All right, uh, a couple more things. He says, I'm all for accountability, but in this case, my reasoning went like this. Our people have good intentions. To think you can control or prevent random problems by making an example of someone is naive and uh, wrong-headed. Moreover, if you say it is important to let the people you work with solve their own problems, then you must behave like you mean it. Um, and he says, do not accidentally make stability a goal. That's interesting, right? Balance is more important than stability. What do you think that means? Well, if you're after if you're after stability, you, you're not going to get those mistakes that help to improve your organization. You're not, you're not taking grow. risks, right? I think that's mm -hmm. like leaving all of your money in uh, a checking account and then just letting it sit there. You know, it's stable, <laughs> right? Yeah. But when it's stable, it's not doing anything. You know, you're supposed to invest your money so that it grows. There's a chance, you know, you could, you could catch a downturn in the stock market and lose some money. That's a risk everybody takes when investing. But there, there's nobody on the planet who would suggest for you to put your life savings into a checking account and just let it sit there your right. whole life. Uh, you have to take the risk, whether it's you know good or bad. Uh, you have to take the risk, invest your money, which in, in you know in the example we're talking about now would translate to let your employees be creative, make mistakes, and uh, over the course of the long term, you're going to see that it helps to improve your organization rather than be detrimental. Yeah, and he's not he's not saying avoid stability at all costs he's saying balance is more important than stability so if you're going to approach stability approach it with a balance uh, a certain balance where you're, you're taking risk and he's not saying that all risk is good either he's saying let's be balanced here and so if it sounds like the, the book is really pushing failure and irresponsibility not at all he was just saying let's just have a, a sound mind when we approach these things analyzing a a person's actions what's the intent behind it and I think that helps you to to get that perspective that he has, which is, you know, does this employee did, did this employee really, you know, intentionally try to delete the entire movie? Like, did that was that was that really the case? Probably not, right? <laughs> Probably not. So, um, having that said, those people that want to fire him, they can easily agree. It's like, oh yeah, no, we we know John. John would never do that. You know, he, he, he definitely just made a mistake. Let's not fire. Uh, there's a thing that they put together called the Pixar University. And it was it was less of a university, uh, like institution of higher learning. He said it's more of a, a way to get people together and learn different skills. He said um, the Pixar University allowed people of all different professions within the company to sit next to each other in a pottery class or a writing class, a drawing class, acting, coding, etc. To where... Now you've got the accountant sitting next to the animator, uh, sitting next to the food service manager, sitting next to the front desk receptionist. And they're learning how to uh, work a pottery wheel, for example. Now there are some really skilled artists in the company, and there are some people that are really skilled in other areas. And now let's bring them together in different ways and then maybe learn some. He said, you cannot overestimate the value of the accountant sitting next to the animator or any one of these combinations. They're going to have interactions that they wouldn't have otherwise uh, established. Um, one thing that Steve Jobs did was really cool. Now, a coworker of ours, a former employee of our company here, he and I visited the Pixar Animation Studios one time a few years ago for a day. They showed us how Steve Jobs, uh, before he passed, he designed the building, the, the, basically the whole studio. He had a large atrium in the center, 
and the there were four bathrooms, like one in each corner. And the only restrooms really in the building were kind of in the center <laughs> atrium. Uh, the center atrium really fostered collaboration. You're going to run into people in the cafe. Um, he had they had a cereal room, which I thought was really cool. An entire room had refrigerators and then cereal dispensers, every kind of cereal you can imagine. And then in the refrigerators, they had kind of every milk you could imagine, like soy milk, almond milk, 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 every kind of milk, and chocolate milk. And then they had a whole thing of bread, all the different kinds of bread, fresh bread, sliced bread, every kind of bread, and then peanut butter, all the different kinds of peanut butter, all the different kinds of jelly and honey and jam. And the idea was... When you grow up, you sit in front of Saturday morning cartoons with a bowl of cereal. Or after school, you got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you're watching cartoons. Let's make this free for everyone. No charge. Anybody who's in the building, visitor, non-visitor. The idea behind this whole design of the building was that it was extremely collaborative. It's just it's one of the coolest environments I've ever been in. Really cool workspace. And it was very, very cool to see how many people interacted with each other of all different levels. In fact, we as visitors ran into Ed Catmull, president, and other directors of films and other people that we'd recognize from from TV. And they interacted with us a little bit, and which was really kind of cool. And the, you could tell the hierarchy was there. It obviously existed. You're obviously going to have a director, and you're going to have producers and assistant directors, and then all the way down. But the, um, the culture was not very uh, heavy-handed. It was not top-heavy like you might expect. And I thought it was just a really cool environment to work in. And the employees were super honest and nice and had so many great things to say about their organization, which, you know, can't always be said about a company. Yeah, that's a great example of, of how to drive collaboration because, you know, in a typical office workspace, everybody is working in their own, you know, individual office, individual cubicle, whatever. And if you never have a reason to stand up and leave your desk, you're not going to make relationships. You're not going to connect with people. You're going to be sitting at your desk privately, uh, you know, working on what you want to work on. And I think just having reasons, whatever those reasons are, whether it's like the occasional team lunch or a cereal bar or uh, anything in between that just gets you out of your seat, talking with your coworkers, establishing those relationships, you know, fostering that community. I, I think you, you really can't undervalue that. I think there's a lot of value that brings to the table. Because you're not going to feel comfortable discussing important business matters with people you don't have relationships with. If you have something on your mind or you've made a mistake and you're reaching out because you need help, uh, you're not going to feel comfortable reaching out to random people that you don't have an existing relationship with to work on those problems or fix those problems. Uh, the, the reality is you need to have an existing relationship before you feel comfortable reaching out saying, hey, I, I need some help on this big project I'm working on. I can't figure out what the next step is. Or, hey, I, I made this mistake and, and I need to know how to fix it. If you don't have those strong relationships within the company, uh, you're more likely, in my opinion, to not be as collaborative and also maybe even be more more likely to uh, you know try to sweep your mistakes under the rug because you don't yep. want to admit that you messed up. So I think that relationship building is uh, definitely a big deal. Certainly. Yeah, I read a quick summary uh, of the book just just now as we were talking, and there's uh, there's a lot of stuff in terms of things you can apply to business. So definitely think uh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'll give it a listen for sure. Anytime somebody can, you know, provide wisdom and give real world examples, right? And, yes, you know, that's 
to me, that's how I, that's how I grow and, and, and learn the easiest and the fastest. So I'll definitely take a look at it. Thank you guys for this discussion. It's been a, been a fun one, I think. And uh, thank you to the listeners. We hope you enjoyed it and hope you join us next time. 